One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the programme. This week, The Hedgehog and the Fox explore literary anonymity in the company of John Mullen. Not the sort of anonymity where the author's name has simply been lost in the mists of time or never recorded, an anonymous ballad, a medieval epic, but deliberate anonymity, whereby writers seek to shape how their texts are perceived by withholding their real names. Sometimes, a pseudonym is used instead of anon, enabling authors to claim different status, gender or origins. The practice has been surprisingly common through the history of English literature, especially once the novel comes on the scene. This sort of anonymity can become a clever game, part of the practice and pleasure of reading, but we'd be wrong, says John Mullen, to think that we, with our knowledge of postmodern trickery, are more sophisticated readers than those in past centuries. I think we are much more earnest and perhaps limited in our ideas of what authorship is than some of the readers of previous ages. I spoke to John, who's Lord Northcliffe Professor of English at University College London, back in 2009, not long after he'd published his book, Anonymity, A Secret History of English Literature. So this programme is a reissue from the archive. I began by asking him to tell me more about the kind of anonymity he was interested in. I'm interested in anonymity and pseudonymity, and the coupling of the two might tell you something about what, what that interest is. Because what I'm interested in is cases where the first readers of a literary work, and I'm talking about really famous literary works, um, some of what one might think of as the canon of English literature, where the first readers of those works were ignorant of, but aware of being ignorant of, the authorship of them. So cases either where a work was anonymous, there was no name on it. So, I don't know, lyrical ballads, which as we know is by Wordsworth and Coleridge, was absolutely nameless. It was just lyrical ballads. It had a name of a publisher, but of no author. But also cases of pseudonymous works where the pseudonym was such as to provoke the reader to wonder about the authorship. So all the way from a lady, the author of Sense and Sensibility, when it was published in 1811, to Michelangelo Titmarsh, one of the many pseudonyms used by Thackeray, which of course is exactly the kind of pseudonym that would provoke any sensible person to wonder about the true author. And what I'm 
interested in in my book is the effect on the reader of that curiosity because when I started a long time ago researching this topic I was provoked to do it simply by the the sheer amount of anonymity and pseudonymity there seemed to me to be in literature and particularly in English literature and what I found out over and over again was that it was actually very rare for an author really truly to be trying to hide themselves that it, in, in almost all cases you found out this paradoxical thing that authors wanted readers to wonder they wanted readers to try to guess at the authorship of their works even if they did their damnedest to make those guesses difficult or impossible and that this was once the kind of static electricity surrounding a, a, a lot of a lot of literature and many wonderful but also popular even best-selling books yeah you describe it i think you describe it as a, a special kind of voltage that comes okay. from anonymity and one of the examples that really stuck in my mind was sir walter scott and the waverley novels and it was a it was a great game that he played over many years and and but it seemed to me that the worst thing that could have happened to him from his point of view was that no one would be curious and no one would kind of come after him but he really relished this game yes i mean it's extraordinary scott now perhaps a slightly neglected figure but um when he was writing publishing his novels in uh the second and third decades of the 19th century he was the best selling writer of fiction in the world that there had ever been as soon as these new his, a new novel by the waverley novelist appeared it was instantly a bestseller and yet until very late in his career his official identity was entirely unknown his name never appeared on the covers of his books and although the circle of people who were in on the secret gradually widened it was very gradual and the number of people who really knew was very small and there are extraordinary stories some of which i i, I give in my book of how um, even close members of his family well into his career as a novelist were remained ignorant and and stories of sitting around the, the sort of scott breakfast table with family members and guests speculating about the possible authorship of novels like waverley and old mortality and the heart of midlothian and and scott sitting there and sort of participating in this speculation and like other writers like swift before him for instance he got other people to copy out the manuscripts of his works so that even when they came to the print house nobody who worked there would be able to know them to know their true origin from the handwriting and scott was prepared to pay quite a bit of money to some of his collaborators to get that done so he went to considerable lengths to retain his anonymity and yet I think there was no question that he was worried or scared about anybody guessing that it was him he relished it he loved it and he he published Waverley his first novel and he went on a 
on a sort of cruise around the Northern Isles and he came back and wrote in letters how delighted he was to find that all Edinburgh was alive with speculation about the authorship of this hugely successful new book. And of course, the curiosity fired sales apart from anything else. So it was a great commercial success in his case, the anonymity. And in the years that followed, even though he became the likeliest um, culprit, if you like, for the authorship of these novels, and even though throughout Edinburgh, but also literary London, he was often named as the likeliest writer, he carried on denying it. I mean, he denied it uh, when asked at a dinner by the Prince Regent. He denied it, although in a rather subtly serpentine manner. So it was, in fact, only when he became bankrupt in the 1820s and desperately needed money to pay off his huge financial liabilities for a consequence of him unwisely investing in a big publishing company. And then he had to declare himself because he needed to do a complete edition of his novels under his own name in order to earn extra sales. And so he declared himself. But we know from his own letters that he had intended to remain officially anonymous to the day of his death. I thought it was interesting in the book, seeing how print culture develops and changes. And well into the 18th century, you write about this convention of feigning unwillingness to go into print. And I wondered when, when do you think that begins to change and, people, and authors no longer sort of say, no, no, no I couldn't possibly uh, publish and that, that wasn't me. Well, I think it continues. I think the convention of at least modesty and reticence about going into print continues well into the 19th century. But it is very much a matter of form. It's a stronger convention for women than for men. But I think that modern readers and sometimes modern scholars and academics sometimes believe all too readily um, or all too completely what was merely a matter of form. So it, it's often said that, for instance, a very famous writer who famously published all her novels anonymously, Jane Austen, did so because, although a great writer, she was a modest lady. But if you look at her case, you see that although modesty was an official reason, which you can see declared on the title page of Sense and Sensibility by a lady, a lady wouldn't tell you her real name. In fact, when you examine the evidence, the letters that Austin wrote to friends and particularly to family about the publication of her novels and about the speculations about her authorship, you find something much more like mischievousness than modesty. I think this is frequently the case, that modesty provides the excuse, even well into the 19th century, for some writers and for most female writers to stick to their anonymity or their pseudonymity. But from at least the early 18th century onwards, it's usually a matter of form which cloaks all sorts of playfulness. Very modest writer, Fanny Burney, a best-selling novelist in the late 18th century, wrote extraordinary journals 
which chronicle the reception of her first most successful novel, novel Evelina. And she sits around in circles of people who are discussing the, the, the reputation, the éclat of this new publication. And she loves the fact that they're sitting around speculating about the kind of terribly clever man who would be able to write such a book. And you get an extraordinarily similar conversation almost a century later with George Eliot, whom I think people don't usually think of as somebody who was diffident about her literary ambitions or abilities. And she too gets this uh, special delight when she sits around hearing people speculate about the authorship of her first and best-selling novel, Adam Bede. And people are saying, well, it must have been written by a clergyman, it must have been written by somebody of a Cambridge degree. There's a special delight that the convention of reticence makes possible, that you can release your book and, as it were, the uncertainty about how much the author is known and what kind of imaginative and intellectual resources the author might have becomes part of the experience of reading the book. Listeners are probably quite familiar with the idea of women writing as men in the 19th century in particular, and you devote a chapter to that in the book. You also devote a chapter to men writing as women, which is perhaps a less familiar idea. What was going on there? The business of men writing as women is arguably at the, at the very source of the English novel. If you had to say who is uh, the first English novelist, I think the two most likely answers are either Daniel Defoe, who chronologically in some ways looks like the first great English novelist, or perhaps Samuel Richardson, who comes a little later, but his first novel Pamela is the first acknowledged great English novel. I mean, acknowledged by its contemporaries rather than by later critics. And the extraordinary thing is that both these early English novelists write novels published anonymously in the voices of women. So Moll Flanders and Roxana by Defoe both purport to be the um, memoirs, the autobiographies of the characters who give the books their titles. Samuel Richardson's first novel, Pamela, purports to be uh, a collection of the letters written by his 15-year-old servant girl, Pamela, who's being sexually harassed by uh, her libidinous master. Now, both those works appeared without their author's names on. In Richardson's case, the author especially once the book was successful and started being praised, was clearly quite keen for people to know it was by him. But he never put his name on it because he wanted it to, to be taken as if it were by Pamela. I mean, everybody knew it was fiction, but it was a fiction which took uh, the conceit of the publication of letters to the extreme of actually behaving as though an unnamed editor was presenting this text. And similarly, Defoe's uh, novels, all of them, whether they've got male or female narrators, were presented as if they truly were autobiographical documents. 
So in some ways, the business of a man writing as a woman, of Defoe writing as Mal Flanders or Richardson writing as Pamela, is a really central part of the early history of fiction. Now, into the 19th century, this possibility carries on. I mean, we know some of the novels of the late 18th and early 19th century, which were published as being by a lady or by a young lady, might well have been written actually by male hacks. But in the 19th century, there's some sort of more interesting and peculiar examples. There's one which I spend some time on in my book, which I think is fascinating, a man called William Sharp in the late 19th century, who wrote some books under his own name, not very successfully. Then in the late, uh, the end of the 19th century, reinvented himself as a Hebridean female novelist, poet, and even playwright called Fiona MacLeod. And a series of bardic works by Fiona MacLeod appeared at the end of the 19th century and were, were, were much admired, and uh, not just by critics, but uh, W.B. Yeats, for instance, was a great Fiona MacLeod fan. And there are these extraordinary stories, the novels, of primal passions and tragic deaths and amongst the um, people of the Hebrides. And Sharp went to great lengths to keep his true identity hidden. And after his death, his wife published a memoir of him in which she admitted that, um, that he was indeed Fiona MacLeod, but claimed that when he wrote, when he wrote these much admired and popular works, he became a woman, in fact, that this wasn't just a sort of a trick, a publishing trick or a useful conceit. It was actually a poetic and visionary transformation. And indeed, this is what had sort of led him to a premature death, because when he became Fiona MacLeod in the act of creation, he so sapped his physical and spiritual resources that it drove him to an early grave. So this is a sort of latter day case. There's, a, there's an extraordinary one, a pseudonymous one, uh, more recently, which contemporary readers might be more familiar with, of um, works published by a, a young Bangladeshi woman called Rahila Khan, whose uh, fiction was published by Virago uh, about a couple of decades ago, but then pulped by the publishers when it was discovered that Rahila Khan was in fact an Anglican vicar from Brighton called Toby Forward. And there was an extraordinary debate in the mainly in the correspondence columns of the London Review of Books between Forward and his detractors and supporters about whether this was a proper and improper, a moral or an immoral thing to do. And, and Forward claimed very earnestly that in creating Rahila Khan, he wasn't trying to mock the publisher or the reader, that he was trying to just liberate himself from his staid identity and discover an imaginative voice, Rahila Khan, was him, really, not a trick, but a sort of imaginative self-liberation. And whatever you think of his claims, when he was doing that, in a way, he was just reaching back down a long history of anonymous and pseudonymous publication in which writers, 
like those originals, Defoe and Richardson, had seemed to use the convention in order sort of to step out of their usual selves and become somebody else. I mean, on one hand, we think of ourselves today as very sophisticated readers who know about tricks and we're postmodern. And on the other hand, something like Primary Colours provoked howls of moral indignation when it was published anonymously. And we think of, you know, memoirs that have turned out to be fictional. So what do you think is going on there? On one hand, we, we you know, we, we think we know it all. On the other hand, we, we get very irked, it seems, by anonymity and pseudonymity and blurring genres. Yes, I think we are much more earnest and perhaps limited in our ideas of what authorship is than some of the readers of previous ages. The case of Primary Colours, which was a huge bestseller in both the United States and in Britain, um, and which was published by Anonymous, is a very good example of that. Its anonymity was part of its, its success because it was a roman à clé, a, a, a novel with a key, a novel in which each character, fictional character, corresponded to somebody in real life. A novel giving an insider's account of what was clearly Bill Clinton's campaign for the Democratic nomination for the presidency, although he's Jack Stanton in the novel. And the secrecy, the mystery of its authorship was part of the frisson for readers, because clearly it must have been written by somebody who knew Clinton well, who wrote from inside knowledge. And so speculation about who this person might be was part of the excitement and the appeal of the book. But when the author was, after a wonderfully complicated and um, error-strewn pursuit of his identity by journalists in America... Um, was outed as Joe Klein, political journalist with Newsweek. There was terrific self-righteous, a terrifically self-righteous kerfuffle on the part of the literary and journalistic establishment in America in particular, and thunderous editorials in the New York Times and so on, as if Klein had contravened the basic rules of authorship or publishing by doing this. And of course, when he did this, like Sir Walter Scott before him, denying, if asked, that he was the author, as of course the anonymous author has to do, otherwise <laughs> he or she is going to be found out probably quite quickly. And um, I think in a previous period, certainly before the 20th century, that the kind of playfulness that Klein's anonymity involved would have been well understood and relished by readers. Now, I'm not sure about readers, but certainly critics seem to find it peculiar or dishonest. And perhaps we're just so used to authors um, importuning us, thrusting themselves at us, that uh, we've lost a sense of... Uh, what interest there might be in authors who are a bit more reticent. But also, of course, we, although there are, there are, there are examples, modern art examples of authors who seem to be genuinely reticent and genuinely uh, reclusive, you know, the famous example that still fascinates uh, critics and journalists of J.D. Salinger, 
uh, an author who doesn't seem to want to present himself as an author, we've completely lost that um, mischievous, if you like, mock reticence that authors used to so often employ. And in a way, I think that's a shame. I think both readers and writers have lost a kind of creative resource in forgetting what the pleasures of that are. I was talking to John Mullen about his book, Anonymity, A Secret History of English Literature. It's published by Faber in the UK and Princeton University Press in the US. You can find out more about it on their websites. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.